welcome to the next episode of the In Development Podcast. My name is Ryan, and this is the podcast for all of you city builders, city shapers, and city dwellers out there that care about driving change towards people-centered communities. On In Development, we talk about how Canadian cities develop in and up. We are presented by IDEA, the Infill Development in Edmonton Association, which is a nonprofit education and advocacy group that brings together like-minded people working to shape our city. On today's episode, Mariah and I have a conversation with John Clark, who is the president of Niche Developments here in Edmonton. After starting his career as a laborer, he then graduated with a diploma in civil engineering from Nate. After that, he worked in project design and construction management, where he developed a keen interest in how we heat and cool our buildings. So he and his partner started Niche in 2016 to change how multifamily buildings are designed and built using things like geothermal systems, which we'll talk about a lot in this episode. He completed his first zero emissions project here in Edmonton in early 2008, and now Niche builds the highest quality, lowest emission projects in North America. But before we get into that conversation, my name is Ryan, and this is Mariah. So our conversation with John was very technical. And usually when I have technical questions about sustainable development practices, I go to people like Ryan and John to ask those questions. So in case you're like me and you need some things defined like I do, I googled some stuff for us. First is the definition for geothermal energy. It's a new way of heating and cooling buildings instead of using boilers and radiators or anything like that. Instead, it uses the Earth's core to produce heat and cooling using vertical closed loop systems. Generally, how it works is that refrigerant or water are pumped through pipes drilled into the ground about six meters deep. On the way, that liquid is either heated or cooled by the earth, depending on the season. And then it's compressed and blown out through homes by a heat pump once inside the home. The second definition I'll get into is the building envelope. This is an important one because if you don't get it right, then everything else you do will be less important when building a sustainable building. The simplest way to describe the building envelope is it's the outer shell of the building, including the outer walls, roof, windows, doors, and foundation. These elements all work together to create a physical barrier between the inside, conditioned, and the outside, natural environments. Now that we've covered that, let's talk about missing middle and sustainable buildings. So our listeners have likely heard the term missing middle before, and they've also likely heard of sustainable building before as well, but very seldom do you hear both of those buzzwords together. And that's why I'm excited to talk to our next guest, who's combining both in their infill developments here in Edmonton. And that's John Clark, president of the aptly named Niche Development Corporation. John, welcome to the show. Thank you, Ryan. Ryan, it's a pleasure to be here. Uh, John, I just want to start off because you're educated in civil engineering, if I'm not mistaken, yes? Yes, I'm a Nate grad from 99. Oh, great. Yeah. Yeah, you were educated in civil engineering, which I mean, I would argue is not always um, associated with sustainable building practices since it looks at things like land grades and underground pipes. So how did you go from there to um, getting an interest in sustainable building practices? Actually, it started more with buildings themselves than uh, civil engineering. So as a youth, I was always interested in the structural aspects of buildings, uh, steel, concrete, wood. And so uh, immediately after school, I actually went and was a framer for a couple of years and learned how to actually build buildings, large houses and commercial projects and how they actually went together. And then I turned that into building bigger buildings. And over time, in, a, in an attempt to shave costs and build a more efficient building, we ended up building most energy efficient buildings possible, which are actually cheaper. So this is kind of the, 
the macro story about how we went from civil engineering into building efficient buildings. Yeah. So you were involved in construction quite a bit in your early years of your career. Is that right? I actually started in, uh, in the engineering world, actually. Um, I started out as a structural draftsman and I was working for several engineering firms and I ended up at Bantrell doing some of the initial 3D structural modeling back in the early 2000s. And so I saw where technology was leading us and uh, I left the industrial world and went back into commercial construction. And then I got a job as a project manager for a development firm in Edmonton doing a bunch of condo conversions. And that's how I got started in construction. Interesting. Yeah. So, and then Niche, where did Niche start from? So Niche is an inception between my partner, Peter, and myself. Um, he's a high-end luxury home builder, and he can finish the inside of a house like nobody. And I am just not a finished guy. I am a structural mechanical guy. So uh, I build a, a superior structure and put the best mechanical systems inside of it, and he puts the finishing touches on it. So as we say, he puts the lipstick on the pig, and I make the pig. So when you say mechanical systems, um, I think you're underselling it a little bit because that's a lot of the, uh, the the meat and potatoes of what makes your sustainable buildings. So can you maybe define what those mechanical systems are? Oh, for sure. But just as a side note there, uh, our building envelope is as important to the mechanical systems and to the uh, performance of our buildings as much as the mechanical systems are. Uh, so to, to start with that, with the building envelope, we try and make sure we have 100% air seal, we make sure that we build our buildings uh, not quite to passive house standard because their insulation levels, there's a certain level where it's economical or as we say, cost effective to do it in a certain level where it becomes, it's not really worth the money to take it to an R80 wall per se. For years, everybody puts in a makeup air and exhaust fans in a parkade because somebody told them they had to for fresh air. Well, I asked the question of, well, why can't we just recycle that heat instead of exhausting it every day? And so now we change how we do parquets. So when you want to have an efficient building, um, people used to say, well, my building's efficient, but my parquet's not. Well, now we can make the entire building efficient. So if we really, really want to affect climate change and really want to make strides into reducing our emissions in our multifamily buildings, uh, this is the easiest way to do it. And some of our commercial and multifamily buildings are the biggest polluters because we use boilers that run 24 seven, 365 days a year, and they never stop polluting because that's how the systems are designed. And so how do you, how do you change that? Well, you have to change how you design the entire building because you can't just try to modify one component in somebody else's system, especially when you're talking a mechanical system for heating and cooling and HVAC needs of a multifamily building or a commercial building. So we went back and said, okay, well, how do you reinvent the mechanical system to recycle as much energy as possible because the reality is a lot of our buildings exhaust more heat than they almost generate like you go downtown and look at a high rise well homeless people enjoy sleeping under the fresh air exhaust because those things are blowing out all the warm air from the parkade all the time well in our buildings that doesn't exist because we actually strip all that heat off so we don't actually have a spot that produces warm air and exhaust and so if you can now start recycling all the energy you've already produced you don't have to produce as much new energy if you don't have to produce as much new energy, then usually geothermal or other sources of lower energy become very viable for the way that your building operates. So a lot of times like people have asked me, like, well, how does your geothermal overcome minus 30? Like, that geothermal doesn't overcome minus 30. The insulation of the building envelope overcomes the minus 30. The geothermal just keeps the room temperature 20 degrees all the time. But uh, and this year, particularly as we've all experienced the massive heat waves over and over and over, our geothermal systems actually work in reverse in the cooling mode as efficient or more efficient than in the heating mode. So in years like this, where you were talking earlier about air conditioning systems in houses, 
Well, our geothermal, we it, the air conditioning doesn't use extra power. It uses the same power as the heating home. And we're just putting the heat back in the ground for the winter. And so you don't have this massive power draw on the power grid. We don't need extra power service to feed the air conditioning to these buildings. So everybody gets the enjoyment of heating and cooling. Um, and they know that they're not destroying the planet for it in either way. Because just because we increase the cost of our power from air conditioning, that's not always efficient because we burn as much natural gas or other forms of carbon to produce power in this province. We don't have a lot of hydro renewable energy sources. So putting in air conditioning systems everywhere drives up the cost of your power because you, it increases the cost of your power consumption. So with our geothermal, the cost of, or the consumption of the, of the power is very stable and it doesn't go up and down. It doesn't spike. You know, if it hits plus 38, the power consumption is the same on the side. Yeah. What I really liked hearing there, John, is that it, it all kind of works together. So it's not just one system um, that can kind of be a uh, kind of a Band-Aid or a fix to our current problem. So I have um, a condo downtown. It's in a building from 1975. The boilers are running all the time to the point that they break down very frequently. I love in the... Um, uh, winter that it's very warm, you know, the air just, uh, circulates inside, uh, everybody's units and keeps everybody warm. We all play together, but in the summer, my goodness, is it hot? How much? So my question that I'm leading to here is how much does the design of the building architecture play a role outside of, um, the building envelope and that type of thing? How much does that play a role in the ability to use things like geothermal as your heat oh. source? It's a huge, it has a massive effect. So at Niche, we actually work directly with the architects um, to the finite design details from the window size to the door size, to the type of balcony doors, to the type of windows, to the type of every product we put from roofing material to the type of insulation, to how it all goes together. And all of that's with the architect and ourselves and our mechanical group. Because although the building envelope, as simply we look at it as the waterproofing and the insulation and then the air barrier sometimes, but how that detail ties into your windows, your doors, and then the structural product we use. We use uh, precast and precast concrete and structural steel. So we can tie into insulated precast walls and have a solid envelope and a solid um, building, but it takes the full team to do it. So as we sometimes, you know, it sounds simple when we say it, but we really have a very good team of people that understand construction, the design details and what various products do because it, from triple glazed windows to dual glazed windows, we analyze what the difference is. Is it worth the cost on the job? Because it's about the energy modeling, the heat loss. And so you have to look at all aspects together. So in our initial design meetings uh, as groups, when we take on projects, everyone is around the table. Everyone has to throw out their initial, oh, this is what the design looks like. This is how we modify it to hit the, as we call it, the environmental goals, which for us is how do we get buildings to zero emission economically? Because it has to be about money. And it cannot be about, it's about save the planet, but it has to be about money because otherwise, why are people doing it? And yeah. I appreciate the principle and everybody always tells me it's about principles, John, and I appreciate that. But um, you're not going to run down the street and put in geothermal if it costs you $300,000 more versus a boiler system. Yeah. So yeah. for us, it has become economical and we can, we prove it all the time in doing work for other people that it is, we are the lowest bid on the marketplace providing essentially what we call a high, a highly durable, energy efficient building. When it's concrete and steel, it will be there for 300 years. And the energy efficiency of that building over the lifespan is such that we, we gave a proposal the other day to a client and we were showing them that over the lifespan of his building, 
he will save 40,000 tons of greenhouse gases going to the atmosphere by going with niche versus the traditional method. Interesting. So now that we can quantify those and measure that and show people the various difference. Oh, and, and as a side note, so this job is in BC. So the, the complete emissions over 40 years for the project was 383 tons. And that was based on the emissions from the power plants because we assumed not all power would be hydro. Amazing. Um, I have a few questions to follow up on, on that, but first I wanted, I'm, I'm glad you brought up the issue of money because, um, principles aren't uh, a well-used currency in a lot of banks just yet, but, uh, it's coming for sure. Um, but you, um, I was lucky enough to get a tour of your Belgravia square project and I was, um, kind of blown away by the size of the geothermal room. Um, that you had dedicated to your entire apartment. I remember when I was, I worked for an architecture firm back in the early 2000s and I toured a geothermal uh, heat system that was powering a large space at that time. And the architect said they would never do it again. It was the size of a parkade. It was enormous. And the loudest machine I've ever heard. Um, how have we come so far in the last like 15 years um, and maybe tell us about uh, a little bit about how small your geothermal system is in Belgravia Square. Uh, you know, it's it's a great question, and, and thank you for that. And I'll, I'll start with this. Uh, I come from a family of ice makers, which, funny enough, if you reverse it, is geothermal heating and cooling. And so I got a lot of lessons from family about how you can do in-floor heating, how you build ice rinks. And and for the record, I mean, my, my family, they built some of the largest ski hills, indoor ice plants, uh, arenas in North America and the world. They've done it on cruise ships. They've done it in malls. Like they're very, very, they're experts in building ice. Okay. So when you have those lessons, I applied them to geothermal, knowing that it's exactly the same technology and theory, just a little bit different heat source. There's no secrets to this. You just need a proper guy who knows how to drill a hole, which is funny in Alberta because we have lots of guys who know how to drill proper holes. <laughs> amazing the technology we have. When you find the right people who know how to drill a proper hole, as soon as that proper hole is drilled, then it's a matter of how do we tie the building system together uh, into what we were doing. Not that it's anything rocket science or engineers. We can swap out engineers with most places. Nothing's proprietary. There's no, there's no secret sauce here. There's no patentable product. We just found the better way to put them together. That's all. It's, it's still simple, like supply return. There's no magic sauce here, but we just didn't take what our grandpa's taught us as the normal. And that's literally the truth. We just stood back and said, okay, if we have to provide heated and cooling and hot water, how do we do it with like, pretend we know nothing, start from scratch. And then it became very simple to us because we saw the answer in the design. And so now we're able to provide clients completely zero emission buildings uh, for the same price as they're used to paying for a boiler system. It's actually kind of amazing. And I, you were kind of ahead of your time because you were building with steel and concrete for a while now. And how big is the smile on your face now that you see lumber prices? <laughs> well, steel prices went up the same, but it's not the same because my, the thing about the steel cost is it's less than 1% of my overall project cost when it goes up because we, it's a limited there's only so much and we do use a fair bit of precast concrete, which the, the attempt that we're always trying to get is the highest quality building, which means we use precast shafts and precast stairs and precast foundation walls because it gives you the sound quality. It gives you the durability in the building. There's no maintenance cost to this stuff. So that's what that's what all building owners want at the end of the day. And then when you can combine that with the other aspects that people get, like our, our, our system, our, our geothermal system, as much as it saves the planet, 
It's actually what people want. Our buildings, it was like living in a commune. You heard everyone's fight. You knew what they were having for dinner when you got off the elevator. You knew, like, you knew who smoked what and all of it, right? And so people just want, literally in their house, we all just want our own private home. That's our little cave in the world that it doesn't bother anyone else and we don't need to hear anyone else. And so that's the big thing that I think we can actually provide at Niche is we give people their own niche, their own home. It doesn't impact other people. It doesn't impact the planet. And, and to us, that's the greatest thing we can give people. Nice. So yeah, going back to that, um, the, the concrete and steel. So what I've heard is that you, you spend a lot of time on the pre-design, the pre-construction meetings. Um, you kind of have this entire team together right from the start, putting everything together, and then you're able to, to still come in under budget, on budget, at a profit for yourself, whatever. Um, as a consultant, what I hear when I hear, you know, pre-design meetings, I see dollar signs. Um, as a consultant, that's where, you know, you love going into these meetings that you charge out an hourly rate and um, it can take forever to get to a certain point. How are you able to balance that and still um, maintain affordability in your projects? Well, we actually, because we understand that the products we design with, we understand the, the limitations to them up front. And so when we enter into a meeting, to discuss the potential of a job. We already know the structural framing grid, like it doesn't change that much. We already know for the most part, especially in our, our wheelhouse of multifamily, it's all typical. It's just, it's just a different ge geometric layout every time. And so we've been able to quantify um, between your steel and your precast, you can actually break it back down to a cost per square foot every time based on every building, based on a couple of design parameters. And, and the big difference is this. It's kind of like where wood frame is, where they know exactly how much wood package they have to buy and they know what the framework costs them per square foot. Well, we've achieved, this, we've achieved the same cost certainty, as we would say in the business. And so when we do the pre-design meetings, for us, the engineering, it's a flat fee. It doesn't matter. There's no extras. It's not by the hour. And we go in engineering the building we are actually going to build. And it's very different. A lot of times owners go to an engineering firm and say, how should I build this building? We're walking in saying, we know how we're building the building. We know what the products and the components are, and we know what the costs of them are ahead of time. Now, uh, and as, as the best explanations I said to my staff on my St. Albert job is we just had to re-engineer the process to build the building. I said, guys, it's fine. We have the Lego box of all the parts. And so it's a very different premise because people have said to me, well, how do you know that that's cheaper? I said, well, maybe the erection costs a bit more, but the supply cost of the material never changes. And so when you have to change your on-site erection process to put the building up, Sometimes it costs a bit more here and there, but we're talking on a, like on a $30 million job, you're talking a difference of $100,000. Whereas if you're trying to do cast in place and you're trying to pour this tower and change how you do it halfway through, it's an impossible task and you just have to suffer the cost to finish the job. And whatever that, it's almost impossible to forecast what that potential would be because you don't know how to forecast all the problems, whether it's weather, wind, you know, incidents, lack of materials, rebar, like these days supply has been a problem. So. Uh, it's very hard to somehow forecast those hard numbers when it's a future labor cost, where for us, everything is completely quantifiable to the square foot or to the ton or to the, you know, even the erection cost is per ton, not per man hour. So the entire building is quantifiable up front. Well, if you can quantify the entire cost up front and it's based on the design and the components within, then we can walk into meetings and we make the design changes based on costs or cost elements that we need to achieve. And we're not worried about let's design it and then price it, you know? So when you know the cost per square foot up front, because that's just the cost of the production of the material, it really affects how you design. And it gives you the liberties to shortcut the design process. So you just know the products. And so the designers have now been educated to this is the price and how we do it. 
and how do we just make it most efficient every job? That's it. Nice. But, but we still do research though. And this is the one thing that most other people don't do. Uh, so we run a research project with NRC Canada, uh, Lafarge Wholesome Canada and Sherbrooke University. And between the three of us, we actually test our structural method in a live destructive laboratory. We run samples two or three times a year. Um, we analyze it We have PhD students writing reports on it. And we take this data to essentially write our own design manuals to become more efficient in the design. We don't have a wood manual to teach us that. So we, we just teach ourselves. And that's how when, when we're pushing those levels of design, that's how you drive the cost down. Uh, so John, when did you start that research lab? How long have you been collecting that information? Uh, we did our first project um, on ourselves, no no funding. So this this one now is a three year and we're, we're into year, we're about to start year three of the three. Uh, the last one we did was in 2015, I think, and it lasted a year. So we've been essentially doing this for, there was about a year gap, so almost five years continuous now. Wow, that information is incredibly helpful. I can't wait to read more about this, the research that comes out of it. I can assure you the 365-page PhD report, I could barely read it. It is so dry and boring with technical data. And, and what I learned about it really is how to, how to space my Nelson studs and a few things like that and not much more. But if you like technical engineering and loads and load paths and charts, hey, by all means, I'll send it through. <laughs> I love executive summaries. <laughs> I think that may be one of the, the biggest failings of master's and PhD programs is so much good information comes out of it. And then... Nobody knows about it. <laughs> yeah. Whoever figures out that magic formula and communicating that information, uh, good on them. <laughs> so I want to talk to you a bit about growing up into a missing middle or medium scale developer. I've heard from other builders and developers in the city that it's it's a grind. It's not an easy task to to, to do. And there's like multiple layers of struggles to overcome to get to, to where you are now. And I'm sure there's more to come for where you want to go. Um, can you talk a little bit about some of those struggles that you've had to work through? You, well, you and you and your partner? Yeah, it's development is a tough game. I had someone ask me once, well, if it's so easy, why doesn't everyone do it? And then when you do it, you're like, yeah, that's why. <laughs> and, and if somebody says, well, what was it? It's like, it's not one thing. It's literally the mountain you have to climb and up one side and down the other to finish a job. And the funny part is construction is only like 40% of the job. Um, a lot of times people are like, oh, you just got to build a building. I'm like, yeah, that's the easy part. Like if getting the permit, getting the development permit, uh, you know, as Ryan knows, like public consultation, I'm sure is his favorite words to say, I have to go do one tonight. Like it's just not what you get up in the morning thinking I want to do tonight. And so learning how, and then the thing about being an infill builder, and we've done it in multiple cities. So doing it in one place, you could learn the rules and become an expert at it. But learning how to do it in multiple jurisdictions with multiple authorities having jurisdiction and multiple rules and zoning rules. You know, I'm from Edmonton, from Edmonton to St. Albert to Calgary. The rules are so different. And how you get jobs done in each city is very different. Um, and, and sometimes that just knowing the zoning rules and how to get permits is the biggest hurdle. I was lucky enough and blessed enough that in early in my career, as I stayed, said before, that I had worked in the engineering world. And so you have to go get permits. You have to file the drawings. I knew what schedules were. Like, there's a lot of things, especially when you go into the missing middle, because if you're a home builder, you don't always deal. You, yes, you deal with permits and, and uh, say a set of house drawings, but a set of house drawings versus 
a package with civil, architectural, mechanical, electrical, sprinkler, plus your shop drawings if you have any. Like you have to know that entire side. So I was blessed as as a young person to have grown up in that world. So I knew what the engineering world was and what those drawings were. And I had done a bunch of wood frames and that sort of stuff. So I had that experience. So relying on that and then relying on my partner's experience as a home builder so that we can get through the what do we do for permits? How do you get, you know, how do we actually get there? That was the and I should say it's more about how do you get to finance? Finance is a lesson for everyone. You, know, you borrow your first five million dollars, it's really just not the same. And I say that is like, you know, projects cost a lot of money and you have to you gotta build them, you gotta do it to get through it. But when you have to make sure that not only do you answer the city, we all have a boss. And so I might run my own company, but my lender, if he calls me up, I answer that phone and I'm there at eight o'clock for that meeting and you because they, they control the money, so they make the rules. Great. Well, learning that sometimes is the hardest part as a rookie developer and getting into the missing middle because you, you can't just go build 100 units. And in my career, I was blessed. Like I had started a development firm with other people. I've done projects, you know, upwards of 300 units and, and half a million square feet. So I have a project resume that lenders like, et cetera. But they say you're still a rookie developer until you go build 18 units, sell it and complete it and don't go bankrupt. Um, we're not going to. You know, you got to go do that. So our first project was aptly named Niche One in, in Calgary, and it was an 18-unit building on a parkade, and it was 100% geothermal, and we did it just like we do the rest. And people say, well, why would you do that? Because well, we wanted to prove you could do it on 18 units as much as you do it on 100 units or 70 units or 120 units. And so we started that way. You prove it to the bank once, then you like, they let you go a little bit bigger, and then let you go a little bit bigger. And now, you know, the rules are a little bit less restrictive to us to proceed as a developer but on infill it's very different so anyone who's built in the suburbs it's a little bit simpler there's no trees there's no power lines there's no and and banks they look at this they need to know you know how to deal with a tree or a power line or you can work on a zero lot line because that's yeah you know as we all experienced in song cologne earlier this year when a crane collapses people die and as an infill builder we use cranes we carry like a lot of my precast is 40,000 pounds on a lift. Well, you have to know what you're doing for that in order to make sure you, people don't die. And I got my lesson in big construction in the oil sands up north, like probably half of Alberta. And we learned about how to big buildings, big steel, 300 foot tall structures. So when you come from that, coming to do a four story walk up in Edmonton seems really small, but it's the same. Every aspect is the same. Safety, protect the public, all that stuff. So, so we're blessed in that sense of my previous construction experience came in such a wide breadth of buildings, but a lot of it was steel. And then of course with, with Peter and the home building and the finishing, that's how we put it together and go. But we're a very rare developer who has that experience on both sides. Most people come from home building and grow their companies from there. But then to get in the leap of the multifamily world, you gotta know fire alarm, you gotta know high rise, you got like and it's very different from a house. And so but I was a commercial code guy anyway, so I don't I don't even know the home code. I only know the commercial code. So it's, uh, it was much more normalized for us. Well, and finding the people to work with in multifamily is completely different than if you're building a duplex or a single detached. It's, it's not the same consultants. It's not the same engineers or even the same people you'd work with at the city. Um, in your 18-unit project in Calgary, which I'm devastated that your first multi-unit was in Calgary, <laughs> what was your biggest lesson learned from it? <laughs> well, we seem to always just have the terrible timing because as we started that project, the economy was booming. And by the time we were done, San Gel had gone bankrupt. Uh, 100,000 people were laid off and the economy was in tatters. So 
Um, other than that, uh, that, act, that project was actually a massive construction success. We put it between two existing homes. Uh, we finished the entire project in six months to occupancy. Like it was, it was fantastic in that sense. But that building gave us the lesson as a developer, how to do infill. We were working next to people four feet from the property line. People come and go. Um, things you don't think about when you buy a property is the, uh, the group home two doors down. And it was for mental health patients. And so one day, one of them jumped in the crane at lunch and started playing with levers. No joke. We had to call the police. Like, oh. sorry. So oh when, when we talk about crane collapses in Kelowna, we were lucky our crane didn't go down and crush three houses on an infill job because somebody broke into the job site on a lunch break in a snowstorm to boot and started <laughs> playing with levers in the crane, right? So, like, things can happen, like, as a developer that you don't expect. And so, you know, calling 911 from Edmonton for Calgary was very difficult. Those are the things that you learn as a developer only by building buildings. And so... When you get through the first couple, it doesn't matter how big or small they are. Like it could be a quadplex, it could be 12 units. Eventually, we all hit those same problems, whether it's a neighbor, soil collapse, whether it's a bad power line or a tree, or, I mean, it could be sewer backups. I've had it where um, a water line once from an old service connection not related to the property blew in the road and put six and a half feet of water in an acre and a half underground parkade in 12 hours. And then we spent the next seven months cleaning it up. And it had nothing to do with us. And you just, you're just you just show up the next morning, you're like, wow, I have a lake and my parkade is full of water and I don't know what to do. <laughs> and so when you get through those things, you learn over time. And, and so if anyone out there says, well, how do we get into it and how do we do it? My only advice would be learn construction as best as you can because you have to know. Because ultimately you are reliable as a developer. It's all about new home warranty and the insurance and what you have to put on the line now. And if you don't know, then don't build it. And if you're not sure, Hire an expert who can either advise you and make sure it is built properly. But far too often, people just build stuff they don't know. And then 10 years later, the building's rotten, it's full of mold, and it's just lawsuit after lawsuit. And it doesn't need to be that way. 20 grand for a better expert will save you 50,000 in legal fees. Yeah, 100%. It's not worth it to cut corners up front. <laughs> no, and, and I mean, our laws have changed now where the developer is liable. So if we build a building that leaks, it's on you. And, and I think that maybe that's the one thing that we haven't touched about is that new home warranty rules really now, depending, and I think that's maybe a bigger block because you have to put up, uh, you either have to have assets on a personal guarantee or put up cash on a big number. So the bigger the building you, bid, you build, the more they want. So at a certain point, it's just a $50,000 minimum cash and you have to be able to put up tangible cash essentially for $50,000 to be licensed to go ahead and build a bigger building. And when we get to that point, that's kind of the economic uh, block for a lot of people to get there is because they have to be able to guarantee the work to new home warranty. And if you can't guarantee the work, you can't be new home warranty certified, which means you can't build. So I do have a question. As someone who's never had to acquire and uh, amalgamate land, uh, you want to walk me through that some of the hurdles of that process? Because I hear about it all the time, that there's a big challenge and not something that uh, the city might not be able to help with. But... Um, yeah, how do you assess it? How do you decide what you want to do with it? How do you acquire it? Like, how are you choosing? So when we look at land, and I've, I've acquired several single houses, put them together, I've acquired commercial sites, industrial sites. Like, I've done a bunch of this stuff. The hard trick, honestly, when you're buying it, the biggest risk is to make sure you get everybody selling to you at the same time. 
because you can't buy one and not the other one. You've got to make sure you have all the lots acquired at the same time. You've got to have the right conditions in your car, in your purchase contracts to achieve that. And once you achieve that, the city, generally we go to the city first before we actually execute and we have a condition period to make sure. And we go ask the questions ahead of time. And if you don't go ask the questions ahead of time, we've all heard of the stories about somebody saying, oh, I didn't know there was not enough water pressure, or I didn't know I needed to add a fire hydrant, or I didn't know I needed, to, I didn't know. And it's like, no, you need to go ask the questions before you buy and acquire. And even if you're amalgamating property, that's okay. Ask the questions all about utilities, about trees, about zoning rules. Maybe as, as one of my clients just acquired a site, he has a restrictive covenant and he has to use piles because of his proximity to the LRT lines. Well, if an average developer didn't know that restrictive covenant was registered and had to pull it on title before he brought the land and he thinks he's going to go put footings under his walls, well, that's a big extra that he's not prepared to pay for and doesn't know. And it's just a little thing in the land details. But amalgamating them, that's easy. That's a land titles function, no big deal. Getting the city on board to rezone it, well, that's a whole different story. <laughs> so um, I don't want to bash one city against another, but you did talk about working in multiple multiple different municipalities and, and some are smaller than others. So their departments yep. are easier to coordinate because there's just less of them. Um, but can you talk about some of the, the pros that you wish um, cities would learn from each other? Like what you wish Calgary would do or what you wish Edmonton would do? Because I, I know for a fact that there will be people in Calgary and Edmonton listening to this. Well, every city has issues, like we all, even in my own company. And so when I when I share these things, I don't want anyone to think I'm pointing fingers or criticizing very hard. It's a soft criticism at best if they want to take it like that. But it's, you know, I'm sure somebody could come in and tell us how to operate better too. So certain things, and I, and I do have to actually give the city of Edmonton, specifically Kim Petron, a lot of credit for the work she's done in the last couple of years, revamping how the city of Edmonton does permits, how they work and the rest of it. And from what I can see on the outside, she's done a fantastic job speeding things up, making it more efficient, et cetera, getting timely answers, that sort of stuff. So some of the issues the city of Edmonton has had in the past are getting rectified, whether it's through zoning rule changes, parking relaxation. So to the city of Edmonton publicly, they've done an amazing amount of work in the last five years, partly from ID as well. Um, that's helped change what they've been doing to make it better, more efficient, and they've listened. So to the city of Edmonton, full credit for listening. Doesn't mean there's no issue still, but sometimes with the city of Edmonton size, uh, it's more about the communities and council than the administration. So when you're dealing with cities, when you have to go deal a rezoning in Calgary, they have specific rules for community consultation, et cetera, based upon how they run their city and their bylaws. Edmonton has its own, St. Albert has its own, Spruce Grove has its own. And so you have to learn those rules. And I, I can't say they're good or bad or better or worse because every municipality evolves the way they evolve. Their rules evolve based on how their cities evolve over the years. And the one trick to developers is to learn, don't walk into St. Albert and say, you guys should act like the city of Edmonton because <laughs> they're a 50,000 person city and they're the city of St. Albert. So you have to learn the rules of all of it. But then it's okay to, like, as, as we've discovered, it's okay to say to them, hey, well, City of Edmonton did this for us. Are you willing or not? And quite often, if another municipality says it's okay, then they're more willing to do it if they've never done it before because other cities have let you do it. So that's the first thing. But ultimately, you do have to learn every city because it's a different council. It's a different staff. It's it's not how they've done their rules. It, it's actually, to be fair, 
the staff are amazing in the cities for the most part. There's always a few bad apples here and there, but I would tell you 98% of everyone we deal with, at, whether it's the city of Calgary, the city of Edmonton, or the city of St. Albert, they're fantastic people doing their jobs and they are there to work with you. And a lot of times rookie developers think they're there to hurt you, but they're really not. They are really there to help, but you got to know the rules. And most people get frustrated because they don't know the rules and think the cities are hindering them because of the rules. And it's not the case. They have the rules to follow for a lot of reasons. And so on our side, it's specifically in the environmental side, the cities are changing the rules to make things so you can be zero emission, you can do geothermal, but we've never built this way before. So you need to craft new rules. You need to, you know, in, in St. Albert's example, we're tapping the aquifer, we're dragging water up, we're using the heat exchangers and putting the water back down. Well, nobody else has ever done this before. So there's no rules on it. Even Alberta environment was like, oh, uh, okay, we've never seen a permit like this before. So when you deal with all the levels of government, you've got to know the rules first. And then when you work within the rules, quite often things work out really, really well. Um, but straight up, City of Edmonton's online permitting so far to date, greatest out of all the cities because I hate printing and it is the best of what they've implemented so far. City of Calgary, I personally think has a better development permit process than the City of Edmonton because they make you do engineering, all the civil works. There's a lot more work you have to do to get a development permit in Calgary than you do in Edmonton, but it flushes out the fire hydrant issues, the water line issues, the pressure issues. So developers actually know earlier on what their potential infrastructure problems are before the development permit's ever granted. So I think in Calgary, it actually encourages better developments and people have more information up front because of their process. You didn't mention that in St. Albert, your engagements need to have a core reporter present. Uh, was that purposeful? <laughs> or? No, no. I, I, I personally, uh, St. Albert, smaller city, uh, different staff, different rules. And if you're comparing them, you got to compare them to Calgary. But you can compare St. Albert, Red Deer, Spruce Grove. They're a little bit smaller. But uh, well, I've done work in Peace River, those places as well. And actually, St. Albert and the smaller centers, um, they're a small, big city. The, to be fair, they've been the best to deal with. It's been, it's a small town feel. Like you can't, at the city of Edmonton, there's too many staff, like you get put in the queue. It's not, it's not, not personable, but in the city of St. Albert, there's three of them. You know, the boss, you know, the two, hey, here's coffee, thanks. Like you have, it's just that much more close working room. It is like working in a small town. So you have that relationship and still follow the rules. There's no break in the rules, but it's just a little bit easier in the sense of it's only two people to talk to. You can have a meeting once a week and your stuff just gets done. And so as a developer on efficiency level, St. Albert's easier. Edmonton, their online stuff gets rid of the paper because straight out of St. Albert, I still have to kill like 40 trees and go drop off a set of drawings, right? So, eh, and, and to be fair, during COVID, I would have rather uploaded it because they had to leave the drawings in quarantine for three days and blah, blah, blah. And I'm just like, you know, let's get, let's get past killing trees and having quarantines, right? So, but that's what, but St. Albert can't be as technically advanced as Edmonton, right? So that's why I say you can't really, it's hard to compare them all because Edmonton's budgets are 10 times the size of St. Albert's, you know? So how do you, that's why it's really hard to say what's the best or the worst of them. Each one, if you go to a small town, you got to be willing to deal with a small town. One of the last things I wanted to chat with you about was uh, occupancy and you build different than most people do. Um, the way people interact with your building is different than other buildings. How do you a get people to buy in, and how do you tell them how to use your building, like and the advantages? Well, those are those are some great questions, and it is sometimes a problem. We won't lie about that. This is when you ask me earlier if any problems. This is one of them. So we've actually developed a, a homeowner's manual like people have never seen. And I've, if you've ever bought a new house, 
people that are, or even a new townhouse or a condo, there's always a welcome pack. Here's your information. Well, our first page is how your condo operates, how your thermostat works, how the maintenance on your heat pump has to be done. And we go through the mechanical first and foremost, and we spell it out for people. But that still doesn't mean people read it. It just means it's there. <laughs> Some people do, but 90% don't. And then three months in, someone's like, my heat pump doesn't work. What's wrong? We're like, well, did you change the air filter? It has an air filter is the response. You're like, yes, here, here's the manual again. Go here, buy one, change the air filter, reset the breaker and tell me what happens. And so it is a bit of an education process. Um, eventually, though, people see how easy it is because it is actually somewhat, I, it's not maintenance free. Changing an air filter every six months is maintenance, but it takes about 10 minutes to do. It's not a big deal. They cost $2.99. It's not a huge amount of work. But then after that in our suites, within the suites themselves, there's very little maintenance. But in the building, our hardest thing that we have to do is educate service companies. Not, and I'm not going to throw names out there. It's just mechanical firms that, that you know, they, they maintain makeup air systems or boilers or this sort of stuff, which we don't do. So then we have to educate them on how to maintain the condo for the condo owners. And that's actually the hardest problem because trying to create service companies to change how they serve, change how they charge. We're trying to change an industry where every other building but ours operates. So it's, that's the biggest hurdle we face when we finish buildings and get people on board. So that's kind of how we've changed our business model a little bit to affect that so that we can, like, we can provide full service to our old building. So we sell it off to condos. We can service it for the next 20 years if they want. They can hire anyone else. We give them, here's a list of what you have to do. But it's a very small list. So it's cheap. But that's, that's I think, the hardest thing is educating companies on how our buildings are built, put together, and how to maintain them. So it takes a bit of a walkthrough. This is how we designed it. This is what you do. And then then they do maintain it properly. Yeah, that's interesting because the, the biggest takeaway for me anyways was that your buildings look exactly the same like buildings that aren't geothermal, passive, or anything like that. So you walk into a building, I'll just use Belgravia Square because I've been inside. It looks exactly the same as like any other condo building in terms of how it's laid out, but it's not. So what I'm hearing is that you recommend everybody reads their user agreements. Before. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I, the new, the new, the new homeowner package is very critical for homeowners because it tells you everything you need to know about warranties for all the products, whether it's your bathtub or your sink or your taps. And I'll be fair, taps are the worst, like they are the worst thing for warranty. So we only put in uh, growy taps as an example. Like we've actually, people are like, wow, growy, that's super expensive. Well, you're right. But the difference in price between a really crappy tap and a super high quality that doesn't break, never has a warranty problem tap is about 20 bucks, maybe 30. So when you put a tap in the sink and it blows water across the kitchen, it's way more than 30 bucks to clean it up and fix it. So we take that approach on that stuff. So with homeowners, it is important, but that's where you learn what you need to worry about, what you don't. I mean, appliances are appliances, but taps blow, shower heads blow. You know, there's little things in condos that are still there, doorknobs, locks, that sort of stuff. Like we have smart locks. Well, if they don't read the homeowner's manual, they won't know to tell the, the locksmith that they want to rekey it, that it's a smart lock and it's a very easy rekey. Yeah, no, for sure. Every time my wife and I stay at an Airbnb, we the first thing she makes me do is we sit down and we read through every page of the rules that's left there. So um, I want to talk about affordability. Are your units priced um, the same as um, your competition that would be standard built uh, with wood, for example? Well, yes and no. Um, and I say that as a, as a jest to a lawyer recently, but because um, the judge asked him yes or no, and he said yes, no. So it was funny. But um, 
I, I would tell you the condos are market price because they sell they sell at a what we call fair market price because our building should sell for more than a wood frame because they are concrete and steel so it's quiet the insurance is less that sort of stuff but uh, condos are also based the value is based on the uh, condo fees and our condo fees are generally the lowest in the marketplace by almost forty or fifty or sixty and in some cases eighty percent. Uh, the average of Belgravia is a sample, you know, the small units are about 200 and the large units are say 350 just based on square footage. So somewhere in between, depending on the size of your unit, will be your numbers. But an equivalent in Belgravia down the street would be say $900 a month. And when you go looking for condos, people can, don't quote me, go look on the MLS and see what their condo fees are because they have to be listed. And they're anywhere from 600 to $900 a month in the average condo. So when you ask about affordability, we actually look at it from twofold. It's not just the price of the condo, but it's also the price of the operating cost. Or in a rental environment, it's the, the total value of the rent. Because we recognize that when people talk about the affordable housing crisis we have, I think it's in the missing middle, not in the affordable housing sector. Because if you don't have a proper miss, like a middle housing ground where it's average price, average this, average that, you either have high end or low end and nothing in the middle which is essentially how Edmonton's been built. It's either a single family house or a crappy old apartment. And there's not much in between. So how do we fill that middle? Because if you want to make the low end more affordable, well, the high end, you have to have a proper pyramid of, of economic rentals. So we look at it saying the average person employed, we look at the stats, we look at the demographics and say roughly for one bedroom, 12 to 1300 a month rent or two bedrooms, you know, 1800. This is what people can afford. Not what we could make on it. It's what you can afford to pay. So we look at it and say, well, everybody is a client of ours because everyone needs a house. So if you have a, a very reasonable rent ask or very purchase, like the purchase prices at market, but it has to be reasonable. And then the operating costs have to be reasonable because otherwise people can't afford it. And, you know, not everyone drives a BMW, but not everyone drives a Ford Tempo or a Kia or whatever. But, you know, cars are the best example of we have every type of car at every price point for everybody's liking. But in the housing world, we don't have that. And there's a big sector of the population that can afford twelve to fifteen hundred a month rent, you know, for one bedroom or fifteen hundred to two thousand a month rent for a two bedroom, working class, middle class people, and there's just no supply and there's no quality housing at that level because we haven't built that missing middle for years. So from our perspective, niche is here to provide that. And we see the big missing gap for it. And so part of our process whenever we look at a building is can people afford to live here? We do it based upon reasonable rents, you know, what people can afford. And if you make a decision to do a job on what people can really afford, the average person, it changes as a developer how you look at your buildings. Because it's nice to think, I've had a lot of guys tell me, I'm going to build a high-end luxury rental. And I just laugh at them. And I'm like, A, no one worth over $10 million rents, you know, maybe a few people do, but not in Edmonton. Nobody's going to come rent for $3,000 a month because they're rich. Because why? It's still about economics. And when people are renting places, they want the cheapest price for the best quality they can achieve. So for us, affordability is twofold. People need a job, they need a place to live. So you have to be able to work within those parameters. And if we all made 100000 a year, yeah, I could charge 2000 a month rent no matter what, no problem. But the average people make sixty to 80000 a year. So how do we find affordable housing for people in that economic class? And when you consider the demographics that 60% of everybody is single, well, we can't be pushing up that many two bedrooms. It needs to be more one bedrooms that are affordable. Not everybody wants roommates. And so we look at these things and say, how do you make it more affordable for the population that exists and not about what somebody in the planning group tells me I should be putting up three bedrooms for people. 
So, and to that point, I'll be fair, in Belgravia Square, I'm the only person who lives there with their kids. And, and yet, at the public consultations and at the public hearings, everybody made it about kids playing on the front street and having room for kids in that condo. And I'm the only person who has kids in that condo. Uh, so like in addition to handing out your user manual, you're also doing some marketing on handing out some material about how much of an environmental impact um, they're making by moving into one of your buildings. Have you noticed a shift towards people looking more um, towards that side of it, more so than the affordability component? Yeah, actually on our, on our website, we track a lot of people on a lot of cookies of what they're looking for, the keywords and how they search and find us. And the two biggest things that we get are hits on the geothermal and the environmental sustainability. And then the second one is the affordability and durability of our buildings. And those that seems to be what people are searching for out there. And we probably, I think we're like 5,000 visits a day on our websites over this, just because wow. we are essentially the preeminent source of zero emission technology, as far as we can tell in Canada or North America. And I have yet to meet another builder who takes the same approach we do. And when we do it, it's this, we can't control how the power is made. I don't build power plants. I don't make them out of gas or geothermal rest. I could build a geothermal power plant, no problem. It's not going to give me enough money. We know we could do it. We've already researched it. It's very viable in this province. Um, but beyond that, I can't control that. But in our buildings, if we can make every building we build zero emission ready today, that's hooked up to the power grid. And if you consider that we have to replace a lot of our housing stock here, um, most of the rental units were built uh, 50s, 60s, and 70s, and there's about 70,000 rental units that sit in that category of age that should all be torn down and rebuilt. And if we're able to tear them down and rebuild them, they are the, some of the largest polluting buildings we have in the city today. So we can really affect our environment over the next 20 years if we tear down the old stuff and put up new. And most people say, why would you do that? That's, that's terrible. I'm like, no, we built buildings in the 50s and 60s and 70s with the technology available, and they're not built very well. They were slapped up and done. And they they leak, they're cold, they're hot, they're not good for anybody. So if we replace our pollution with clean buildings, it really changes how we go forward. And everyone talks about targets, about how we reduce, how we do this. I'm sorry, but we can't all afford a $70,000 Tesla to stop driving gasoline powered vehicles. You can buy a Kia for $10,000 and drive it for years on less money than you would ever pay for a Tesla. So how in the world can we all contribute to reducing climate change? Well, we put up zero emission buildings and LRT lines. You don't need a car. You can live emission free, essentially, no matter where you go. So we need to build our cities to let people live emission free instead of building cities to have carbon vehicles drive all over the place, which includes trucks, fire trucks, delivery trucks. I mean. If you look at Europe, you'd never allow a semi in a city like the city of Edmonton, but we let it go here all the time because we're not England or, or Holland or France where you can't put that big of a truck on the road. Um, and the truth is actually we design all of our stuff for fire trucks, nothing more. And so if we bought That's the smallest great. fire trucks, we could change how we build our subdivisions. That's, I'm really happy you said that because another guest on the podcast is going to be Cameron Bardas, um, who also lives in that world of not designing for fire trucks. So yeah. <laughs> That almost felt like a call to action, hey? Well, it is. I mean, for us uh, on the inside, when we're talking environmental sustainability, you, it starts at home. Everyone always says it starts at home. And they're right. It starts at home. You recycle better, throw your garbage out properly, compost. That's a huge component to it. Then if you don't burn gas, like if you if you take an old house and you re-insulate it and rip out your furnace and put a super high efficiency one in or put in geothermal, well, now you're starting to save the planet. But in housing, for whatever reason, 
people are lazy. They'll buy a house for 20 years and never maintain it. They'll like, what? I have to repaint the outside. What? And it's just like, it's this myth. So, so from us, it's like, well, people don't want to have to do that. So you have to be able to build to what people do, not what they say they do. And so people say, oh, I'll maintain anything. No, nobody wants to mow the lawn on the weekend. He wants to go watch a baseball game or a football game or whatever it is, right? Maybe volunteers, doesn't matter. But they don't want to have to paint their trim on their windows. They don't want to have to caulk the windows. They don't want to clean up the eaves trough. So how do we build buildings that people want to live in? And lifestyles have changed over the last 50 years. So let's change how we build. Let's change how we live. And let's save the planet at the same time. And it can all be done because it's all about money. Oh, that was a beautiful ending. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, normally it's a little clunkier than that, and we got to like extract the call to action out of you, but you basically like talked for 10 minutes about it. So that was awesome. There you go. Well, John, I'm so glad that you were able to spend the afternoon with Ryan and I on a beautiful 30 degree weather. Uh, Edmonton, uh, Friday afternoon. That was a lot of afternoons in Wednesday. <laughs> <laughs> But uh, I guess the heat is getting to me. <laughs> I need an airtight home. Um, before I let you go, can you give us a, a call to action to the infill community and everyone else who listens to this podcast and let them know why we need to start thinking about things differently? From us, you need to change how you think about living. We don't, we don't live like our grandparents did. My grandma grew up without power. Today we die without power. So... We have to change how we build, change how we live, change how we think about driving to school, going to work, everything. And if we change how we think about living, then we'll change what our expectations are. And when we change our expectations, we can find that there's a better way. And that better way is not polluting the planet. We do not need to burn carbon. We can live a very, very high quality life in a non-polluting environment. But we got to forget what our grandparents taught us. On the, on the bad side, not everything, but on the side of burn more oil, burn more gas, burn more this, and that's got to stop. Now, for the record, we, we need oil. Our geothermal pipe comes from oil. Half of building products come from oil, but you don't need to burn oil. When you make plastics, it's not the same pollution as when you're driving your car down the street or the train goes or you take that flight somewhere. So ultimately, if people can really change how they think about what we need oil for, about how we burn it, about how we use natural gas and about how we live and take a step back and really change their thinking, we really can change the planet. Well, thanks so much, John. And I hope that everyone listening in today will go onto John's website, learn a little bit more about what he does, uh, him and his partner, and, and how they do it. Because I've tried to look at their social media and it's just lacking. John, you got to pick it up on social media. <laughs> All but, I think I know. <laughs> but uh, his website is looking super crisp and uh, his contact information is there if you have any other questions. Thanks a lot, John. Thank you. Well, that was awesome. I love John and I like talking about Skimmel because that's just like what we're going to talk about for the next 10 to 15 years because it's got its own set of problems that we're gonna have to tackle <laughs> i mean hopefully i hope we talk about it for a long time yeah talking to john and people like john makes me feel really dumb really dumb yeah i have always been really out of my element when talking to him when i first met john we met at lockstock which is as people will continue to listen to this podcast well they'll figure out is my favorite one of my favorite places in edmonton great baked uh, goods great baked <laughs> goods yeah such good baked goods um but yeah 
but I was just like, oh, like potential idea member. Let's let's talk. Let me get to know your company. And everything he said, I was like, well, you're going to have to join our policy committee because I don't know about anything that you just said. And I think I should know about all the things you just said. And I need to tell the city all the things you just said. Yeah. It's yeah. I was the chair of that policy committee for like, I think a literal minute. And every time John would come to a meeting, he didn't come to all of them, but when he did, uh, he dominated the conversation, but in a good way, he talked a lot about things that I didn't know were real problems. And he did it with such passion and also, uh, a a huge amount of knowledge that I was basically just a note taker. So I was chairing these meetings, but basically just writing down everything John said, and then basically parroting that to you uh, or whoever to, uh, to get some stuff done. He knows a lot about a lot. Yeah. He was the first person actually to tell me that uh, our power grid and the way that we distribute power um, leading into like this next phase of development with, more sustainable development practices and uh, electric cars and people wanting hot tubs and all that stuff was going to be a big issue. Um, and that, you know, as we build missing middle developments, we need to figure out a way to like pay to move around power poles because they're everywhere in mature neighborhoods and they get in the way. So that was three years ago and we're working on that right now. Like he's always been kind of ahead of his time. Is that just the power poles or it's like more, it's about the grid and that kind of thing too, right? So what I've been told is for the most part, we have enough juice in the grid, but we don't have ways to get the juice out at the right time uh, and to the right places. So we're going to have to move around a bunch of power poles. There's some more technical devices to help us like limit who takes out electricity and when, Um, but like, we can bring on an electric electricity expert to talk about that on a future episode. Yeah, I don't think you and I need to start figuring out those problems or even trying to attack them in uh, in this outro. So I think it's um, fairly obvious to say that we are not um, going to fact check anything here that John said because uh, I don't know even where to begin reading peer reviewed journals and uh, going back to university, I guess, for some sort of mechanical engineering degree to even fact check anything that he mentioned so we're just going to take it all at face value i I imagine hey yeah well you know i've talked to him a bunch of times relayed some of his information to other really smart and technical people and i've never had someone come back and be like hey what you're saying or what you've been told is completely wrong so we're going with it yeah we're gonna go with that (laughs) uh i think it makes a lot like it makes me feel a little bit better i've seen a lot of niche development signs pop up on sites kind of close by to me. So um, sites that were vacant for a long time or had for sale signs for a long time, all of a sudden now niche has an ability to make something work there where nobody seems to have done that in the past. So um, that makes me feel confident that he knows what he's talking about at least. But it's nice to see a developer like that who, who kind of pushes the, pushes the envelope on the sustainability front and the missing middle front uh, doing well. I like that. Yeah. If you're in the Edmonton area listening to this podcast, drive around some of the beautiful mature neighborhoods we have in the university area and you'll see what Ryan's talking about. It's awesome. I, every time I see those signs, I get so stoked. I'm like, yes, I know that guy. I know what yeah. it's going to look like. <laughs> yeah. It's kind of nice. Yeah. 
Um, yeah. And you knew the guy before he, uh, before he really blew up because this podcast is going to give him tons of notoriety and he's going to change his social media accounts, like you suggested. Um, and he's going to be probably, I don't know, part influencer, part sustainable builder in the future. (laughs) Yeah, I think, uh, yeah, you heard me bug him at the end of the episode, but clearly he doesn't need social media. His projects stand on his own and he was just like, oh, whatever, Mariah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I I want to talk about Belgravia Square because I talked I told the story a little bit in the episode, but um, I don't I think I want to reiterate the scale of what of what I was talking about. So uh, John gave me a tour of one of his buildings, uh, Belgravia Square. It's I don't know how many units it is. I want to say it's over fifty, maybe it's close to fifty. Whatever it is, it's an apartment building, four stories, and. Um, he toured me through the geothermal room. So like the room that provides heating and cooling for this entire apartment building. And Mariah, I am not lying. It, it was the size of a closet. It was like 10 pipes lined up on a wall. Um, and the pipes are, I don't know, like six inches thick or something. Like they're not huge. And they each have a little gauge and they're either hot or cold to the touch, depending on what, what was going on in that system. But that is what powered or provided heat and cooling for his entire apartment building it was this little shoebox closet full of 10 pipes and i i said in the episode that um i went on a tour of an old commercial building and it's old my goodness it's like 20 years old now but in like 2008 i went on a tour of like edmonton's one of edmonton's first geothermal buildings and it was in the full basement of this commercial building which was smaller than belgravia square and the geothermal room was like the entire basement this gigantic piece of machinery that was so loud that we couldn't even have a conversation in the room we went in looked at it and then left and then the architect just bitched about it for the entire time so to see where we've come in like 15 years going from that discussion to a guy heating and cooling his entire building using uh you know a closet sized system is is it's crazy it's uh, yeah it's nice to see and i really hope that john's not the only one doing it although i'm sure he would be mad if i promoted that to other people <laughs> yeah it's crazy to know that uh well you know this about me ryan i i love shopping but my closet is bigger than his whole heating and cooling system for an entire apartment building yeah that is kind of scary actually yeah so one thing i did actually look up is um you know, what do we benefit from by going geothermal um, in our system? So the, the, the one thing that I noticed is uh, CO2 emissions. So what I found is that the average everyday Canadian or American um, has about 45 kilograms of CO2 emissions every single day. So that's, you know, all the electricity we use, all of our, you know, paper straws, plastic straws, whatever, the driving that we do, and, and everything in our building. So everything aggregated together uh, means about 45 kilograms of CO2 emissions. And now 20 kilograms, so almost half of that comes from the heating and cooling systems used for our buildings. So just for, you know, you and I are both sitting indoors right now and we're sitting fairly comfortably, I imagine. I'm wearing slippers. It's a little bit chilly in the basement. But, uh, you know, my heating and cooling systems in my building use almost... 50% of my daily emissions. So by going through, um, you know, 
a fun fact actually is driving through a drive through from one end to the other has more CO2 emissions than switching from a plastic to a paper straw, which I thought was kind of interesting. So <laughs> yeah, pretty scary. But anyways, that that's, that's separate. So the, the biggest thing is going to these geothermal systems. That's, that's where this, um, that's where John and his company and people that are working in the geothermal realm, that's what it attacks is how many carbon emissions, um, we, we emit as a, as a per person thing. So there, that's my fun fact. There you go. It's uh, I clearly need to not go through drive-thrus and just get out of my car and walk into <laughs> going forward. Um, yeah. Anyways, that, uh, yeah, it was such a nice conversation. And I think John knows that there are people like me living in his buildings that want to do a good job and live a more sustainable life. But that's why he created those homeowner manuals. Like that was such a good idea. I know, such a nice touch because the average person doesn't know the stuff that he knows. So yeah, like you said, it um, it, uh, it bridges the knowledge gap. Like you said at the start of this, there's a pretty big knowledge gap between guys like John and then us. Uh, this bridges that gap a little bit. It at least puts things into layman's terms because, like I mentioned in the episode, um, you don't even notice like his buildings look and feel exactly the same as like. I don't want to call it a regular, but a regular building. So you wouldn't even notice that without having this homeowner manual that you do need to maintain it in some different ways or, or look after it in some different ways. But uh, you live in a condo. I previously lived in a condo building. What were you given as a homeowner's manual when you moved in? When I bought my place, we were given some gift cards from our realtor. No way. And yeah, it was actually it was really, really lovely. And that was it. Yep. Uh, I didn't know how to change the air filter in my apartment and went to an AGM meeting. And this lovely guy took pity on uh, me and said, I was like, hey, does anyone know why there's black stuff on my ceiling? And they're like, yeah, you got to change that air, air filter, girl. And I'm like, okay, cool, 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 cool. So, uh, <laughs> no homeowner manual for me. Uh, just trial and error. So that's nice that John has gone that extra mile. Yeah, it is nice. I was given a copy of our condo bylaws, which told me everything that I wasn't allowed to do in the building. And uh, for for the condo that I had, the electrical room, we had like an electrical room on our floor. I don't know if that's common or not, but all of your electrical panels are in this one room. So all of our neighbors, everybody on the floor has their electrical boxes in this one panel room. Anyways, I didn't know what this room was. It was just a room on the floor. And then the first time I tripped a breaker, I had to call the building manager to be like, hey. And then he's like, see this key that we gave you that you've never used before and nobody explained what it was? It's for this room, you dummy. So, you know, the, the idea of having this handbook, I think is good even if you're not living in a geothermal <laughs> building. But yeah, I really like that John does that for, for his tenants. Yeah, so uh, I think it's easy to say that you and I like education. <laughs> that's why we're doing this podcast. And that's why we are gushing about his handbook. <laughs> oh, that's a really good segue and a really good way to finish this. Yes, we do love education. We do love handbooks. Yeah, learning is great. The more you yeah. know. The more you know. Yeah, exactly. Okay. Well, that was a fun episode. Um, yeah. And do you want to talk about next week or or next episode or just leave it? Just leave it. Let's leave okay. it a surprise. <laughs> <laughs> it'll be it'll be a good one. People will be excited to see the bridge between uh, this week's and the next episode coming out. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Well, I hope you have a good rest of your week then. Yeah. Thanks for hanging out with me. Yeah. See you, Mariah. Bye.
Thank you.